All right, so for uh, our Christmas series this year, as you know, we decided to do a three-week series titled A Branch, A Baby, and Bethlehem. And our first week, Dustin, um, I mentioned this last week, took the easy job and did the uh, one on the, br- <laughs> on the branch. Just teasing him, just teasing him. So he dealt with Jesus as the branch of Jesse, the root. Last week, we discussed the importance of Jesus being born as a baby and uh, covered quite a bit of theology on that. So in our third and final discussion today, we're going to look at the town of Bethlehem. And at first, as I sort of dove into this, Dustin even kind of reminded me, he's like, you might want to take and work on the Bethlehem first and then come back and do the second message, because Bethlehem might be the more challenging. And I think it's because I shared with him, I'm like, I'm not really sure how much material there's going to be on Bethlehem. And so he kind of encouraged me to do that one first, which I did. And um, I tell you, I was, I, was, I was fascinated by the stuff that I had kind of learned. Um, have you ever asked yourself, why did God choose Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus? You know, what's interesting is oftentimes when you go into different cities or towns, you see these placards or these signs that tell you what they're known for. I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and when you come in, home of the Packers, everybody knows. If you know anything about football, you know who the Green Bay Packers are, one of the most storied franchises in NFL history. Um, back to the 1920s when you had a bunch of ragtag guys who all worked part-time um, in factories while they would try to play football full-time. So you go back to Green Bay, and Lambeau Field is right there as you pull in. Anybody know what Delaware, Ohio was known for? Rutherford B. Hayes. Anybody know who that was? 19th president of the United States. There you go. When I first uh, went out to Kansas, um, I went with with my boss, and then the second trip, I went with uh, one of my coworkers. And on both of those trips, both of them kind of remarked, they're like, you notice these things along the highway as you're driving? They're like these silhouettes of covered wagons and other things. And any idea what that means? And I, and I was like, I have no idea. I've been out here two or three times. I have no clue what this stuff means until all of a sudden on a second trip that I went out there with, with my coworker, we're driving. And I pointed at him again. I said, I still haven't figured out what these things are. And he said, huh. Looks like a covered wagon. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, isn't this like the stopping point on the way out west? It was like Independence, Missouri. It's the last place they could stop on their trek out west. And so they would load up on all their supplies. And all of a sudden it's like click, click, click. Oh, that's right. That's what it was known for. Well, not only that, but there's also the Harry S. Truman Presidential Library right there in Independence as well. He was the 33rd president. So towns are kind of known for their associations, and every town wants to find some association. You know, I mean, Circleville, it's what, pumpkins, and there's other places that are tomato, whatever it is. And so every town wants to kind of have those associations. Well, as I dug into Bethlehem, what I learned is that there are are maybe a, a number of reasons why Bethlehem was chosen, some very simple ones, like the demographic reason. If you remember, Emperor Augustus decreed that a census be taken, and so everybody had to go back home to their hometown for the census to be taken. Well, so that kind of explains one reason maybe why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, because that's where Joseph was from. And so because of the census, he had to go back to Bethlehem, right? But I don't think that's going to satisfy us this morning. There's also maybe a theological or prophetic reason. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you remember, he said this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So we might have a theological reason there where Micah said Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So that would make sense that the Messiah then was born in Bethlehem, right? But when you think about this, why Bethlehem of all places? Why did God prophesy that Bethlehem would be the birthplace? He could have chosen anywhere. Why not choose Jerusalem? I mean, that's the capital of Israel, right? What better place for the king to come from than the capital city? But instead, God chose Bethlehem, this fairly small, seemingly unremarkable village. It was six miles north, or I'm sorry, south of Jerusalem. Micah refers to it as too little to be among the clans of Judah, which means it was a somewhat unremarkable town. We're not really sure how big it was. John refers to it as a small town or a village in John chapter 7. The census figures from the first century are somewhat sparse. They're almost non-existent, to be real honest. Um, Most commentators believe that Jerusalem was maybe between 1,000 and 10,000 residents, was even at that time would have been considered fairly small. So why is it that the Lord would choose such a place to have something as important as the Messiah be born there? Why not choose a much more important place? If we were making the decision today, we would choose something much much more remarkable, right? We wouldn't just choose Ashwaubenon, Wisconsin, to put the Green Bay Packer football team. That would be crazy. But that's what they did back then. One of the things we know about the Old Testament is the importance of symbolism. That's kind of where things come into play with Bethlehem. Symbolism and foreshadowing is done through associations in the Old Testament, especially when it relates to Jesus. And I believe that's where we should look to find our answers to why Bethlehem. Um, I'm going to do something this morning that is very dangerous to do in theological circles. Um, When it comes to interpreting the scriptures, we are sticklers about taking it at face value. What it says is what it means. And so, in fact, I sent sent, uh, Dustin an, an email this week about why expository preaching, about why it's so important for a preacher to get up and to say, this is what it says, and just tell you what it says. Um, That's the standard method of preaching and teaching. However, the New Testament writers often did something, and it would be when they look at some Old Testament passages, sometimes they allegorized those passages. And what I mean by that is they used them as symbols, and instead of focusing on just what the actual text says and meant, they looked at what it might symbolize as well. And that is something that oftentimes happens in, in the New Testament. And so, if I were in seminary and I got up and I allegorized a passage of Scripture, they would call me Catholic. <laughs> because that's common in Catholic theology. Oh, you can't really take it for what it says. There's a deeper, hidden, spiritual meaning behind it. That's not what I'm doing this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look back at some passages. There's going to be seven of them we're going to look at. So we're doing a lot of reading this morning. And we're not going to focus on what it means but we're going to look at the association with certain individuals. And we're going to focus on that, meaning we're going to look at Bethlehem where it's mentioned in the Old Testament and who it's associated with. And I'm going to keep some things secret until we get to the end. And then we're going to have the big reveal, what those associations mean. Now, you're going to pick it up as we go through. If I could play Donald Trump for a little bit, the payoff should be huge. Okay? 
So there's going to be a payoff at the end. So I'm going to kind of keep some things in my top pocket, if you will. Um, we're just going to read these passages and see who Bethlehem is associated with. All right? Make sense? So forgive me if we don't get into the deep details of exactly what this passage means, because again, we're just looking at the associations. I'm going to be much like a New Testament author who says, remember this passage? It's sort of like that. It's a form of allegory, and it's appropriate to do because, again, it focuses on the symbolism because oftentimes what God does is he, he teaches us not just through the literal meaning of the text, but simply on the associations that are made. And that, that gives a depth to Scripture that is phenomenal. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at the associations, and I think it will be a good payoff for us at the end. Okay. So the first passage I want to look at, the first time Bethlehem is mentioned in the Old Testament, is in relationship, in relationship to Rachel, Jacob's wife. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 35. And we're going to try to do this fairly quickly because there's, I got five pages of notes. And I know last week I went an, I went an hour. I try to keep it to about 45. I usually spread that to 50 minutes. I'm going to try to keep this down for us, okay? So pardon me if we, if we go through this fairly quickly here. But Genesis chapter 35 First time, I believe this is the first time that Bethlehem is mentioned. Genesis 35, starting in verse 16, it says this. Then they journeyed from Bethlehem, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrah, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was severe, or when, um, when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came, to, uh, came about... As her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrah, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of, of Eder. So we learn immediately that Bethlehem is associated with suffering and sorrow here. Rachel dies in childbirth. She names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my suffering. Jacob renames him to Benjamin. Jacob ends up burying her at Bethlehem, and he sets up this memorial to her. In fact, if you went to Bethlehem today, you would still see that memorial that's set up. Now later, when Jacob is approaching his death, he recounts the events that happened here. He refers to his own sorrow and its association with Bethlehem as well. Go back to Genesis chapter 48, verse 7. Genesis 48, verse 7. He says, Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So we find in our first passage here, if you will, Bethlehem's association with sorrow. So that's the first thing we want to see. Second thing, second passage I'd like to look at is in Judges chapter 12. And we're going to find three passages that all relate to Bethlehem in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. Judges chapter 12, starting at verse 8. 
Now Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now this is just a very short passage, obviously. We learn about a man named Ibzan. We know that he was a judge. How come nobody ever names their kid Ibzan? All these great Bible names, you know. He was born, it says, in Bethlehem. And he's actually the eighth judge of Israel. Now, we know that the judges in Israel weren't just successive judges, meaning there were different judges in different areas of small clans, and only certain ones apparently are mentioned. And so he happens to be a judge, happens to specifically be from the small village of Bethlehem. He only ruled approximately seven years, but he was a judge. And he was an important enough judge that he was mentioned here. Now, the text tells us some other things. For some reason, the author, this actually fits into one of those things like, why did they include that in the Bible? This is one of them here. The author, for some reason, thought it was important to mention he had 30 sons, and he had 30 daughters. He had a lot of kids, 60 kids. He married the daughters off to men outside of the clan, And then he brought in 30 women from outside to marry his sons. Now, why that's important, I'm not really sure in the context of this passage, but it's in the Bible. They want us to know that. I'm sure we could probably spend a lot of time. Maybe that's the passage we'll give to Dustin for the future to work on. I'm sure somebody somewhere could preach a sermon on that for 30 minutes. But what we learn about this here is that in the second mention of Bethlehem is we have this fairly relatively unknown judge, but important enough to be mentioned. Now keep that in your back pocket. Okay? Let's turn to a third passage. It's also in Judges, chapter 17. And it happens to be associated with Micah. Alright? A man named Micah. Micah was from a place called Ephraim. And as the story goes, we'll get to the passage in a section here, but as the story goes, he had stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. He felt guilty about it, so he goes to his mom, he confesses his sin to her, and he returned the silver to her. She takes that silver, she dedicates a portion of it back to the Lord, but then she has it fashioned into some idols, and she returns those idols to Micah. Well, Micah's thrilled with this, so he sets the idols up in his house, and he consecrates his sons to serve as priests before these idols. The passage seems to suggest that Micah is sincere in his desire to worship Yahweh. Unfortunately, however, he does it against the mandates of the law. He may not have known better, or he may. We do know that Israel fell prey to the the practices of the Canaanites around them. Oftentimes they would go in and they would take an altar that was used to worship Baal, and they would say, well, we'll just, you know take off Baal's name and put the bumper sticker for Yahweh on it. We'll use that to worship him. And, oh, by the way, we'll just worship Yahweh the same way the pagans did. Because all, it's all the same. We're just worshiping him. Don't ever see that in our society today, folks? So they would do that, but they would fall prey to it. And it appears that it's probably where Micah's at. But he does seem sincere in wanting to worship Yahweh. Well, look at verses 7 through 13 of chapter 17 in Judges here. Starting in verse 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem, there's our mention, in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he was staying there. What was a Levite in the Old Testament? A Levite was a priest. 
Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And he made his journey, and he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. In other words, I'll take care of all your living expenses. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, Micah, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, And the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. So we do see there Micah's heart that he was thrilled to have a priest of Yahweh there, somebody to minister to him. And as we learned last week, the role of the priest was to serve as a mediator between God and man. And so again, it appears that, that Micah at least has a sincere heart in wanting to worship Yahweh. Now, oftentimes, symbolism and associations in the Bible are not perfect. So, David, for instance, is a type of Christ, but he obviously wasn't perfect, right? He wasn't sinless. And we kind of find that here because Micah is an idolater. It's not a good thing, obviously. The priest is an opportunist. He's a priest for hire. In other words, he's looking for work, and he finds work. We find out a little bit later that he's pretty much willing to do whatever, whoever's willing to pay him the most money. In fact, there's a time where some men come and steal Micah's idols and they steal the priest along with it and he basically agrees to work for them simply because they're going to pay him more than Micah did. So this association is not necessarily a good association with Bethlehem, mentioning a, a wayward priest, but there is this association with the priest. So it's still a valuable association. So again, keep that in your back pocket. We'll come back to it. There's another reference to Bethlehem and Judges. It's part of another well-known story that also involves a priest that happens to be in Judges chapter 19. Now you might remember that story as well. We'll get to the passage in just a second. Let me lay some groundwork for you. There's a priest who takes a concubine. Another way to say that in some respects is an extra wife in the Old Testament. She commits adultery against him and then she runs home to her family. The priest then travels to her home to win her back, where her father convinces him to stay for a few days, but then every time he attempts to leave, the father manipulates him into staying another night. This goes on for like three days. You remember the story where he gets up in the morning to leave, and the father says, well, no, 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 why don't you have a cup of coffee with me? All right, I'll have a cup of coffee. Well, then he has a cup of coffee. Well, have a donut with that. By the time he gets done, it's just too late to leave. So, well, it's too late to leave. Why don't you stay another night and leave in the morning? Okay, next morning he gets up. Why don't you stick around for breakfast again? And so that goes on for like three days. And finally the priest, or I'm sorry, this, yeah, this priest finally has enough. And he's like, oh, no, no, it's just time. I, let me have my wife and let me leave. So finally he just makes, makes his escape, if you will. He leaves. He takes his concubine with him. She agrees to go with him. However, tragedy then strikes along the way as they're traveling back home. They get to a place called Gebeah. And the men men of that city are described as, quote, worthless fellows. They knock on the door. They want to have their way with the traveling man. That's not going to happen. So, unfortunately, they throw the concubine out. And I think it's the man's other daughter. And they rape the concubine. They rape the daughter. The next morning, when the priest gets up, he finds his concubine basically laying on the floor outside the door. It's a terrible, tragic 
wicked situation. So what the priest ultimately does, he loads her up on his donkey, he goes home. Pardon the descriptive nature of this, but he basically cuts her up into 12 pieces. Why 12 pieces? He's going to send a piece of her to every tribe in Israel. As a result of that, all of these tribes rise up and they realize this horrific thing that had happened in Benjamin because that's where Gibeah is. It's in the tribe of Benjamin. And so all Israel rises up and said, this is a wicked, wicked thing. And ultimately in the end, they all go and they attack Benjamin and they wipe out all the men, or most of the men, as a form of punishment. Now as a way of kind of redeeming that, they all give up some of their men and they help to rebuild the tribe of, tribe of Benjamin. That actually comes into play in the book of Second Samuel because there's some things that take place there where they don't expect Benjamin to go out to war because they didn't have enough men. They were busy rebuilding the tribe of Benjamin. So that's the groundwork for our story. But I want us to focus on just three verses related to that story. It's in Judges chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself. And look at where she's from. From Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and she went away with him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. And there for a period of, or in, and he was there for a period of four months, or she was. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys so that she, or so she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet her. So we have this story now of this concubine in Bethlehem who commits adultery against her husband. Her husband then goes back to Bethlehem for the purpose The text tells us here, it's rather interesting, to speak to her tenderly, to win her back. Keep that in your pocket. We'll come back to it. It's important. Let's go on to another passage. Am I teasing you along too much? Are you anxious to know where this is going? There's another famous story, and it also has to do with the book of Ruth. It's just a couple of pages over probably from where you're at. I'll do some groundwork here again, just like we've done the last couple of them. We studied Ruth a while back. It's a fantastic book. You remember, it's a story of redemption. Um, A man named Elimelech leaves Israel with his wife Naomi, the two sons, or his two sons, and they moved to the land of Moab where his sons marry Moabite, Moabite women. One of them named Orpah, the other one named Ruth. Unfortunately, Elimelech and his two sons die and they leave all three women as widows with little hope. It's not like today. They couldn't just be taken care of by Social Security or unemployment or other things. When their husbands would die, they oftentimes were left somewhat destitute. Because they were still young and could remarry and have children, Naomi actually tries to convince Orpah and Ruth to return to their families back back home. And she was going to go back to Israel then where she had family. But Ruth refuses and moves back to Israel with Naomi. Orpah goes back. She says, okay, I'll go back to my family. But we find this remarkable response by Ruth who basically says, no, 
where, where do I go? I don't have any family other than you. She did. Physically had family. But she also says, your God is my God. Where am I, what am I going to return to? It's a great story. And that's then where the story turns from tragedy of losing their sons and their husband to despair into hope and triumph because we're introduced to a man named Boaz, a wealthy relative of Elimelech, who not only develops a fondness for Ruth, but marries her and fills, fulfills the law of what's called the kinsman redeemer. You remember that? She kinda, they come up with this little scheme. They learn about Boaz, a close relative. And so Naomi says, huh, why don't you go work in his field? Maybe you'll happen to catch his eye. Um, be good to him. And maybe, maybe he'll be good to you. And so she does that. And she goes out there, she gleans, and Boaz happens to, she catches his eye, you know, and he takes an interest. Well, who, who is she? Where is she from? And he begins to have a fondness for her, and he, he does extra special things for her. You remember where he sends her home with extra grain and stuff? And when Naomi learns about this, she's like, this is awesome, because he's a close relative, which means he might be able to redeem you. In that culture, you may remember that um, a close relative was not only... Um, encouraged, but required to marry somebody. So if you had a brother, for instance, and his wife died, I'm sorry, if, if he died, that meant that there was nobody to carry on his legacy, nobody to carry on his inheritance. And in the Old Testament, inheritance was to be kept in the family, should not have been lost. Even if you sold your property, within seven years it had to be returned back. Okay, And so a redeemer would be somebody like a brother who would then marry the wife of that brother, would produce offspring for her, and those children would be considered his children, not necessarily your children. Now, what you may not remember about this story is that much of this story takes place where? In Bethlehem. Look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. He was a close relative. Now behold, Boaz was where? From Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. I want you to jump now to chapter 4, where we finish the story. Chapter 4, starting in verse 7. We'll read a good chunk of this here. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, now there was another man who was closer in terms of you know, relationship, to Naomi and Elimelech. And so the only way Boaz could marry Ruth would be for this other man to say, I won't do it. I'm not going to redeem her. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Those are the two sons. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife, now look at this, in order to raise up the name of the deceased 
on his inheritance. In other words, Boaz is doing this not for himself. He's going to raise up a descendant, another son, for this Malon, one of his relatives. So that that would be carried on. His name would be carried on through children. So that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses to this day. All the people who were in the court and all the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem, and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer today. May his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Who had given birth. So we have this other association now with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Keep that in your pocket. One of the greatest associations with Bethlehem comes from David. We've been spending a lot of time focusing on David, haven't we? Do first and second Samuel. While Jerusalem is most often thought of as the city of David, it's mentioned 45 times in the Old Testament, Luke refers to Bethlehem as the city of David as well. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Oops. Luke chapter 2. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee and the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now again, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is typically mentioned as the city of David. Here, Luke specifically refers to Bethlehem as the city of David. Look down at verse 11. He does it again. For today in the city of David... There has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now why is it that Bethlehem was referred to by Luke as the city of David? Well turn to second um, I'm sorry, turn to first um, Samuel chapter sixteen. Anybody remember where David was from? David was from Bethlehem. That's why it's his city. But not only that. It's where David was crowned king, or anointed as king as well. So, 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? When a prophet like this would enter the city, it was so generally... One of two purposes. He was either there for judgment or he was there for blessing. They didn't know. He shows up unannounced. Could be either one. So they ask, are you coming in peace? He said, in peace, 
I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse, that's David's father, and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now here's the thing. Shortly before this, the Lord said, I want you to go to Bethlehem because my king is there. Now Saul was king at this time. Saul was going to be replaced. He was not a good king. The Lord had made him king. He abused that authority. And the Lord says, I'm going to replace him with a man after my own heart. And that man happens to be one of Jesse's sons living in Bethlehem. So Samuel's there now looking for this. Samuel hasn't been given the heads up by the Lord. He didn't specifically give a name yet. So Samuel's simply there going through the list of men, the list of Jesse's sons. Okay? So when they entered, he looked at Eliab and he thought, Surely! The Lord's anointed is before him. Well, probably because he was the first one. He started with the oldest son. Clearly God would make the oldest son the king, right? But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not what man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Ananadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all of your children? I mean, clearly, the Lord said one of Jesse's sons would be, and he's just ran through the list that were presented before him, and I wonder if Samuel at this point is wondering, Well, wait a minute. God couldn't have gotten this wrong. There's got to be somebody else. So Samuel says to Jesse, are these all your children? And he said, well, there does remain yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for he will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Who? Who? This is him. This is the king. This is what I've told you about. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And so this association here with David has to do with David being a king. There's one last association I want to look at here in terms of a text. And that happens to be from 2 Samuel chapter 23. So keep what we just did in your pocket and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. You all want to know where this is going, don't you? I can see it in your faces. 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23. I don't think... Have we... Covered this yet in our series? Or is this, I think this is one I've got future yet, so we'll, we'll come to this. So this is a, a foreshadowing of a passage we're going to deal with here in a few weeks. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went, well, let me just say this. David is surrounded by Philistines here, okay? And he's taken up a hole in a stronghold, probably, possibly a cave or something. Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time of the cave of Adullam while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold 
while the garrison of the Philistines was there, or was then in Bethlehem. David was craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the, 30 might, or so the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was at the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out on the Lord, or to the Lord. For he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the mighty men did. So David and his mighty men are battling the Philistines and have taken up a position in their stronghold. The text tells us that David develops this craving for water. But not just any water, he wants the Dasani of waters. He wants the water specifically from his hometown of Bethlehem. There's only one problem. David and his men are surrounded by Philistines, but there's also a garrison of Philistines in Bethlehem. So they're not only surrounded David by his stronghold, but they also now have taken up position in Bethlehem. Now, we're going to study these mighty men. It's a, it's a fascinating study of who these mighty men are. These are the best of the best. And so three of them, I believe the text, even when we go through this, I believe that even gives us their names. We'll get to that in the future here. But three of these mighty men see David wanting this water. And so they decide to bust through the garrisons, bust through the lines that are surrounding them, also travel to Jerusalem, and somehow sneak behind the, the Philistine garrisons, garrison in Bethlehem and go up to the well, which would have been a fairly popular place. It was the well in Bethlehem. And somehow they get all the way there, They draw up the water. They then have to sneak again past the Philistines to get out of Bethlehem, then past the Philistines that are surrounding David through that line again. So now they've traversed this this line four times, all to bring David water. And what does David do with it? He is so impressed with their bravery and their commitment to to him, the fact that they literally risked their lives to bring him water from Bethlehem, that David says, I can't drink it. Instead, he pours out the water, it says here, as an offering to the Lord. Keep that in your pocket. Okay, folks. This is where it gets really cool for me. Okay, I promise that huge payoff. Could it be that these associations are a foreshadowing of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem? I think they are. I'm going to give you some phrases. We're going to look at some passages. The first thing we looked at was the death of Rachel and the sorrowing and the suffering that she experienced at Bethlehem. Could it be that Bethlehem's association with sorrow and suffering at the death of Rachel foreshadowed the sorrow and the suffering that would surround the birth of Christ? Think about this. What did Herod do to the children in Bethlehem. He had all the male children under the age of two slaughtered. Matthew actually quotes an Old Testament passage related to this. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. Matthew chapter 2. He actually quotes from Jeremiah 31. Matthew chapter 2, 
Starting at verse 16, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and all in the vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Look at this. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled... A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were there no more. In essence, what Matthew is saying is that Jeremiah prophesied the slaughter that would take place. And notice who he ties it to? Rachel, weeping for her children, Ramah here is believed to be a, a, a sort of a, a referencing of, to, of Bethlehem because it was one of the surrounding small cities. And so the first association we saw was the association at Bethlehem with sorrow and suffering. And we see how that was exactly played out in Bethlehem with the birth of the Messiah. Second, I want you to think of the word Judge. Could it be that Bethlehem's association with Ibsen, remember Ibsen, our judge, not only born in Bethlehem, but also died in Bethlehem, that's where he ruled from as a judge? Could it be that that was supposed to foreshadow the birth in Bethlehem of the judge? I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 10. Well, we'll start in verse 9. Therefore, he's talking about Christ here, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or, or, or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Folks, Christ ultimately is the judge. He's referred to the judge. We go into the book of Revelation, we find the great white throne judgment, and who is the one who is sitting on it? Judging. So we not only have this little tiny reference in the Old Testament to Ibsen, who happened to be a judge of all Israel, becomes a foreshadowing of the ultimate judge being born where? In Bethlehem. What about the third association we looked at. Remember Micah? Could it be that Bethlehem's association with Micah's unnamed Levitical priest was to foreshadow Jesus Christ's birth in Jerusalem, who ultimately, we are told, is the new heavenly high priest? Look at Hebrews chapter 9 with me. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. It says that when Christ appeared as what? As high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal salvation. So now we look at this and we say, huh, interesting. The Old Testament introduces us to this unnamed Levitical priest 
who happened to be from, born from Bethlehem. And now we look forward to see that God chose Bethlehem as the place that the ultimate high priest would also be born. Who would serve as our mediator between us and God. Interesting foreshadowing. What about the other story of the Levitical priest? You remember the story? His wife commits adultery against him, his concubine does, so he goes to that city. I find it interesting that it says that he went there to speak tenderly to her, to win her back, to restore their relationship. So could it be that that story of the Levitical priest who went to redeem his wayward wife, his wayward spouse, he sought to restore that relationship with her, to mend the relationship, and all of a sudden we look at Christ and we think, interesting, Christ came as a baby in Bethlehem for the purpose of doing what? Restoration. Look at what uh, Acts chapter 3 says. Turn to Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you whom heaven and earth, or I'm sorry, from um, whom heaven must receive until the period of what? Restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Jesus Christ was sent to restore all things. And look at the way that he did it. The Levite priest, if you think about that, his wife committed, or his concubine committed adultery, broke the relationship, then she splits and she heads back home, back to her old lifestyle. She's there for four months. Her husband, or her priest, literally took the initiative upon himself to leave his home, how interesting, go to her home, where he speaks tenderly to her to win her back and then takes her back with him. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like what we see in Christ? In fact, we're told that Christ came to restore all things. Our own relationship with Christ is described as one of a bride to a husband. Look at the parallels there. And it all took place back in the Levites' day in Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, in Bethlehem. And where did this take place in the New Testament? Again, back in Bethlehem. So, so far we've got Bethlehem associated with sorrow and suffering in both the Old Testament and the New. We've got it associated with a judge in the Old and the New, with a priest in the Old and the New, and now with restoration in the Old and the New. What about the story of Boaz? Could it be that that story in Ruth, where the kinsman redeemer, Boaz himself, is not only from Bethlehem, but lives in Bethlehem? That's where the child, his, the child that he gave to Ruth would be born, right there in Bethlehem? 
Look at the parallelism again. Could it be that maybe that was a foreshadowing of the kinsman redeemer that we have in Christ? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says this, In him we have what? Redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Jesus Christ is referred to as our kinsman redeemer. Boaz was a foreshadowing of that. Boaz happens to be from Bethlehem. Where is Jesus from? Same thing, born in Bethlehem. What about the sixth association we made? Could it be that Bethlehem's association with David, Israel's greatest king, have foreshadowed Jesus' birth in Bethlehem as the ultimate and final king? There's a reason why David was born in Bethlehem and anointed in Bethlehem, and why God then therefore had our king born in Bethlehem. John chapter 18, verse 37. Pilate is looking at Christ and he says, So, you're a king then, huh? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So the anointing of the proper line of kingship began in Bethlehem with the birth of David, then the selection of David, and the anointing of David as the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. It began there. God did the same thing in the New Testament, where he chose to have Jesus Christ born in the same place as a descendant of David, I mean, a descendant of Jesse, who would ultimately become the king. The last association that we made with our text this morning was with water. So I wonder, could this also, could the the, uh, well in Bethlehem and David's thirst for it foreshadow Jesus' birth in Bethlehem as well? Pardon the pun. Because after all, Jesus gives life-giving water to all who thirst. I want you to look at John chapter 4, verse 13. John chapter 4, verse 13. Let me get there. Jesus is at the well with the Samaritan woman Jesus answers her and says everyone who drinks of this water meaning from this specific well will thirst again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I give him will become in him what? a well of water springing up to eternal life the woman said to him sir give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw And he said to her, go call your husband, and you know the rest of the story there. But basically Jesus says that I will be like a well springing up to eternal life. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? We have all these associations that are made. We have the sorrow and suffering. We have the judge, the priest, the restoration, the kinsman redeemer. We have the king. We have this association with water. All of these things that are all associated with Bethlehem in the Old Testament 
And now we see them associated in the New Testament. Now there's one last one. I'm going to give you a bonus one here. Okay? It has to do with the meaning of the name Bethlehem. Does anybody know what the word Bethlehem actually means? The Hebrew word for Bethlehem actually means house of bread. Isn't it interesting how the one who came from the house of bread is referred to in the New Testament as the bread of life? John chapter 6, verse 30. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me, or he who comes to me will no longer hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So, why Bethlehem? I'm going to propose to you this morning that um, what we've seen here is that God, in his infinite wisdom and literature, chose this small little town of Bethlehem. And throughout the Old Testament gave us all these little tiny clues through the associations, like to that of a king and a priest and a kinsman redeemer and a judge and a well. But just like David, who poured out that water as an offering to the Lord, we see that take place in Christ as well. And so I, I think... This is probably one of the coolest things I think I've ever seen in terms of symbolism and foreshadowing in the Old Testament. Why did God choose Bethlehem? In his wisdom, he thought it was appropriate. But like I said, he gives us all these neat little clues and these associations that we find all of them fulfilled in Christ.